Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. My faith would lay its hand on that dear head of thine. Now that maybe needs a little help. In the old covenant, Every year, every man would need to bring a certain number of sacrifices to the temple. And one would be a sin offering. And he would have to lay his hand on the head of that animal, preferably a high-quality, a spotless goat, sheep, oxen. They're all involved in this. You lay your hand on the head before it gets killed. And then the priest comes and he kills it in front of you. And that's your sin. That's your crucifixion. That's your death. That's your blood in the animal. That's the atonement. Huh? So... My faith would lay his hand on that dear head, Christ on the cross, that dear head of thine, while as a penitent, I'm, I'm sorry, I stand and there confess my sin. My soul looks back to see the burden thou didst bear, Christ on the cross. When hanging on the cursed tree, I know my guilt was there. Believing, here's us today, we rejoice to see the curse removed. We bless the lamb with cheerful voice and sing his bleeding Bleeding love. One of the like, like least modern, least nice things about Christianity is that we're actually a blood cult religion. A human sacrifice blood cult religion. Now, before we got to the human sacrificing, we started with just animals. And God wanted this to happen. He said right away, right after the fall, that sin was so bad, our nakedness was now so filled for shame, with shame, we needed to be covered. And frankly, plants won't do it. He needed to strip away the skin and the blood of an animal and put that over the guilt of Adam and woman. And from that point on, the sacrifice of these animals continues through Noah and down to Abraham and down to Moses, where we get that old covenant really clearly laid out when they did this and that and this way and that way, because God said, do it just like this. And if you look at it carefully, you have to admit, if it's not prayer and God, then it's blood magic. It's the most evil, disgusting thing you can imagine. It's people going to a god that's a cloudy, fiery flame in a tent and killing stuff before it all day long, every day for years. That's the old covenant. Now, most other old pagan religions have these sacrifices as well. And I wouldn't be surprised, America, if they start coming back. I can tell you they already exist in certain pockets in America, usually in the wilds a little more. But pagans are want to make sacrifices because they know what the Bible teaches, that there's life in the blood. And that shedding blood is a sacred act no matter when it is done. For the Hebrew mind, when they tell us to refrain from blood in Acts chapter 15, it's not just a matter of they don't want us to eat it. They actually saw blood as holy. They don't want us to shed it, unreasonably so. Yeah? Um, why? Because it is the means by which we will either die or live. You die when your blood stops working or you live forever when you get a blood that will help you do so. We even try to trans do, do transfusions to extend life, right? I'm not saying that's wrong. What I'm saying is that not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain, nor all the blood of men come and gone in the name of themselves has been sufficient 
to live forever until this one man comes who says, bulls, goats, sacrifice is not enough. God needs a better body. This is the Hebrews text now. We're into it, right? Verse five, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. What did that mean? Well, Jesus realizes it's not enough for man to be covered with some skins from animals. He needs a new flesh. And so that's who Jesus is. A new man, a new flesh, sinless, perfect. You know, God could have stopped there. Incarnate as Jesus, fly away, build a new universe. But instead, he wanted to extend that new body that lives forever to all of humanity. And frankly, to all of creation. That the new world that will come will be built out of his body. This same one that God desired to prepare for himself to enter which then he is willing to give as the ultimate blood sacrifice. Which at the end, right? Verse 10. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Christianity is a religion of blood magic, but it's not magic. It's just blood. It's blood and prayer and faith and a true God and now a true man, at last. Adam was one, we are not. We are fallen men. But we have a true man as our king. And by the end of this, I want to convince you that this supper, this meal, is him. It's how he is enacting his eternal reign now, while we wait to see it. We don't get to see it now. We believe it now. Why? Because there's others who don't believe yet. And if he comes back and ends the world right now, they won't believe. And he loves them too. It's not rocket science. It's the love of a father for his creation. But in it, he saw what we needed most was not, in fact, prayers. It was not laws. It was not paths to doing things better. Notice how it doesn't even say that we have been justified at this point, although that's true, we are. But what does he need? He needs holiness. He needs sanctification. And that doesn't come from man. That doesn't come from us. Holiness is God's eternal own being. It's what makes him him and you not him. But you have to have enough of it to get close to him without getting burned by him. And that's what we lost when we fell. And that's what, again, Jesus, just by entering us, has done. He's made man a holy thing again. And now, not just himself shedding that blood, he pours it on the earth to share it with you. To share it with you. Now, we'll all believe this No. But you do. And church is the place where those who believe it hear it again and then speak it to each other so they can be convicted and strong. Because you know this story is not being told out there. It's all manner of every other story in the world, even the good ones. But they're all just ideas from far away. And this is, in fact, what's real. That the blood inside of your body ain't good enough. And it won't be. But the blood in that wine, however it works, it is. And always shall be. The old has passed away. Excuse me. The old has passed away. The new has come. Hebrews, as a book, is really trying to drive this point home. That that old covenant, the smoke and the fire and the shadows, that all of that that was seen has now been condensed into the simplicity of Jesus, the man, and then what he's left behind for us, which the author of the Hebrews does not go directly into the Lord's Supper as talk. He just talks about Jesus' blood. I don't know how you could go into an early New Testament church and hear people talk about Jesus' blood and then hear them talk about how they're eating Jesus' blood and not think it's the same thing. In the modern day, modern evangelicals would like to read the Bible 
as if it mentions blood and the blood of Jesus is some far away thing. You'll find it all over the New Testament, the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus. And it's like some far away thing. The Pentecostals will even try to claim it. They'll say, say by the blood of Jesus, I shall have victory today. And then they believe that that's the blood of Jesus. They just got to yell it loud enough. It's quite amazing, really. When all along he's instituted it here to just give it to us. So you can walk out and know that no matter what you see, and even if you fall again this week, crawl back, he'll forgive you again. Because that's what he wants. He doesn't want to cast you out. He wants to draw you in. He wants to build you up. He wants to make you grow. And he knows that doesn't happen from one tut-tut. In fact, he knows it only happens when he breathes new life into you. And again, the way he does that is he tells his story over and over again, and he draws you through signs, washing with water, eating bread and wine, signs that he says are more than just signs. Uh, but as he says to others who don't believe in him, if you won't believe in me because of what I say, at least believe what I do. No, here it is. Believe what I do. I give you a meal that binds you to me forever. I'm your king. Trust me. Okay, that's probably enough on Hebrews for this morning. There's so much there. I mean, we could have gone for a couple hours trying to get the context around chapter 10 there. He's way deep in his argument, and the book itself is, is very complex. It's probably the toughest Greek in the New Testament. Uh, it's just a really stunning thing. We don't even know who wrote it. Do you know that? Hebrews? We have no idea who wrote the, the book of the Hebrews. Uh, some say Paul. Some say Barnabas, some say Apollos. We debate it. It doesn't read like a letter. It reads like a sermon. It's, it's fascinating. But we'll leave all that for another time. For the remainder of our time here, I want to draw us from the story around Isaiah chapter 7 into its fulfillment in Luke chapter 1 and not miss too much of what's going on in Luke chapter 1, but I could probably just spend all our time on Luke as well today. But the Isaiah stuff is so good. It's so good. So, I want to start with talking about memory, though, a little bit. It's probably one of the hardest lessons to learn, especially for young people, which is that memory is not what you think it is. What you remember and what you think you remember is far less than you've actually experienced or has been. To the level that you'll reach a point in your life, you're probably there all the time, but it takes to like, I don't know, maybe your mid-40s to realize that you can't remember how much you're forgetting. And you see it happening around you. And you want to figure out what's going on with my memory. Now, I actually think I've always had a memory like that. And as a kid, I'm just, kids, you're just too dumb to realize how much you forget. As you get older, you get smart enough to realize how much you forget. Now, apply this though, because this isn't just about me today and next week. This is about me and my entire life and who I am. Let me ask you about a name that should be a famous, a famous name. Yeah. Um, President Garfield. Have you heard of President Garfield? Okay, not the cat, right? Good, most of you have heard of him. How many of you know he died by assassination? That's good, quite a few of you, really. How many of you know he was shot in the back in a train station? Oh, well, there you go. Okay, how many of you know that he didn't die right away, but it took months? Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, there. Okay. Months and months. Do you know why it took months? I'll let you answer if you know, because you, you guys, you know. Why did it take months? Anybody know? No? It was in the back, actually. And what happened was the doctor in the train station, who wasn't his doctor, but stayed with him the entire time because nobody asked him to leave, stuck his finger in the wound to find the bullet and infected the wound. And since antiseptic was magic at the time, although they were using it in Europe, but in America it was magic. We won't do that stuff. No one put any antiseptic in the wound. 
And months later, at the seashore, with his body filled with pus, he died. An amazingly good man, too. You can read about him in a great book called uh, uh, Destiny of the Republic. He was a Christian. He didn't want to be the president. He was forced to be the president. He tried not to get elected. Can you imagine that today? Trying not to get elected and getting elected. You can't, can't imagine it. Okay, who is this guy? Garfield. I'm telling you stuff you don't know about him. He's got an amazing life. He was impactful. He was the president. Where is he now? Where's his name now? Where's his story now? This happens not only with great men, great women. Uh, this happens with nations, with great histories. So what I want you today is to take everything you know about like the most famous, scary person you can imagine. What's, what's your favorite scary thing? Is it the United Nations? Is it COVID? I don't know. Is it an asteroid? Aliens? I don't know. Pick your favorite scary thing that you realistically think could bring about destruction on our, in our neighborhood. Okay? Try to be real, though. Don't be, don't be fantasy-ish. Be real. And now I want you to think about these two names. There's a guy named Pekka, the son of Remaliah, and a guy named Rezin, who's the king of Syria. And these two names... At the time of Ahaz, king of Judah, and Isaiah, the prophet, these two names, if I said them to a crowd of you like this about Judea, you would all say, what are we going to do about it? They're coming, both of them, with all of their armies. Damascus, great ancient Damascus, how can we stand against them? The whole nation of Judah was terrified because Damascus was an upstart, new seafaring power in the shadow of great Assyria, which is a much bigger and more ancient nation, but a vassal to them and yet looking south, to expand their territory and influence. They form an alliance with Ephraim, or Israel, the northern tribes, against Judah in order to take the coastal lands of Judah and let Ephraim take Jerusalem and rule over all Israel as a united nation. They bind together in alliance. They plan to do this. Now again, Pekin, Pekka, and Rezin. I want to emphasize how you don't know who they are, and you probably won't remember them. But there was a time when they were so scary that the king of Judah, who had Yahweh, the God of Israel, on his side, was convinced he was going to be destroyed by these men and their armies. That's how great they were. Way bigger than any of us will ever be in terms of leading people, probably. Yeah? And they're coming against him. So what does he do? What does Ahaz, this unbelieving son of a fairly believing line, this is several generations after the whole debacle with Athaliah and the killed babies and all that. Do you remember that? This is like several generations later than that. Um, so he should really know, you know, that God has been with his family through this, that Judah has been protected through all the ups and downs, but he doesn't. Um, and so what does he do? Uh, he sends notice or he sends a letter to a different king. I mentioned Assyria before. If I kind of draw the map here with my hands, Jerusalem and Judah are down here. Israel's here. Damascus is here. That's Syria, not with an A on the front, but Damascus, the city, being their head city-state. And then up here, you have Assyria, much bigger, and centered around Nineveh. You'll remember that, right? So it's Nineveh versus Damascus. Damascus is upstart and powerful, messing with some low people on the ground. Nineveh's got the broad empire. It goes in every direction as far as they can go. All right. So Ahaz sends a letter to them. Hey, great masters in Nineveh, do you know what these people in Damascus and Israel are doing? They're going to come and they're going to make me pay them taxes. How about I pay you taxes and you knock them out for me? 
It's not bad politics, really, if you think about it. The, the problem is that God has already promised Ahaz he doesn't have to do this. And now Isaiah is going to come to Ahaz again and tell him, you don't have to do this. Now, this is the immediate context. So right before our text, uh, let's start with verse 3 of chapter 7. I'm in the New King James at the moment. The Lord said to Isaiah, go out now to meet Ahaz, you and Sh'er Jashub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field and say to him. So Isaiah has to go to this spot. It really is a spot. You can find it today and visit there, I believe. Uh, and he waits and he meets the king. And here's, here's what he's going to say. Take heed. Remember, this is from God to Ahaz. Take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted for these two stubs of smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. What does he mean by that? He says, do you see these little like smoldering wicks down here that you're afraid of? Stop it. They're nothing. They're nothing. Because Syria, Ephraim, verse 5, and the son of Remaliah have plotted evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and trouble it. And let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves and set a king over them, the son of Tabal. Because of all of that, Isaiah says, thus says the Lord God about Rezin's plans and Pekah's plans to take over. It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Rezin. He's not going to say much more about that there. Other than that, uh, what you want to expect from that, the implication, the head of Syria is Damascus, the head of Damascus is Rezin, is that if Rezin falls, Damascus will fall, and Rezin is aligned with this other guy, Pekah. He's going to be more specific about Pekah. Within 65 years, Ephraim, ruled by Pekah, will be broken so that it will not be a people. Who's going to destroy them, by the way? Assyria from the north, the very people Ahaz just sent word to. The head of Ephraim is Samaria. The head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. So both Remaliah and Rezin are expected to be destroyed by Assyria, the very one Ahaz is sent to, but not because he sent. Uh, if you will not believe, Isaiah says to Ahaz, surely you shall not be established. Moreover, moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz saying, this is our text, ask for a sign. So again, put yourself in Ahaz's shoes for a sec. He's not a believing king. He doesn't trust in Jesus at all. He's got armies coming from the north on two levels. He sends to a greater power, says, I'll happily be your vassal. He never prays. But he's met by a prophet of God who says, all that you've done is wrong. Trust your God. He will establish you and none of this will come to pass. Ask for a sign and I'll give it to you. Now, I want to point out how rare it is that God comes and not only says he's going to do something, but says, here's a sign. Ask for it even. And maybe for that, let's tangent a touch here. We're going to get to Mary and Gabriel announcing Mary, Mary's uh, pregnancy to her. There's another announcement from Gabriel in the book of Luke before Mary's. Gabriel appears to Zechariah. He's a priest. He's married to a woman named Elizabeth. Zechariah is in the temple doing his priestly duty. Uh, they have to do this like, once a year, go in and, and do their work. He's doing his, and Gabriel, the angel, appears to him in the temple and tells him that his wife Elizabeth, who is past bearing age, was called barren, uh, that she's going to have, have a child. Now, 
His response is a little different than Mary's. I want to read it to you. Uh, and then I want to talk about it a little bit. Let me find it here. I believe it's in verse 18 of chapter 1 in Luke, where Zechariah responds to the angel. The angel just told him, like, your dreams are going to come true, right? And he says, how shall I know this? What he says next is, you know, it, it's hard for it to believe it's happening. I am an old man. My wife is well advanced in years. That's not the problem there. The problem is, how shall I know this? Look what Gabriel says next to him. I love this. I think this is funny. If you don't, if you don't have my noir humor, then, then you may not. But Gabriel says, you know, how shall I know this? I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you. Right? Like, like how shall you know? Right? I'm telling you, man. So anyway, what happens, though, is then he curses Zechariah. He tells him, here's how you're going to know. You want a sign? Here's your sign. You can't talk till John is born. You're going to name him John too. And do you remember? He writes the name John. He can talk. Huh? All right. So asking for a sign. When God comes and says, I'm going to do something for you, you're not supposed to ask for a sign. You're supposed to say, thank you. That's what Mary will do. And we'll look at that as, as we get to her. Um, remember, I, I got to throw in Gideon here too. Gideon is the great example of sign asking, right? Here he is living amongst the Philistines, has to like beat out his wheat in a, in a wine bin so he can't be seen because they'll come steal his wheat. That's how starving everybody is, right? Um, and God comes to him, hey, mighty man of war. He's like, no, I'm not. <laughs> you will be, God says. No, I don't think so. And back and forth they go until finally God's like, what? Not even that. Finally, Gideon says, prove it to me. Do the fleece thing. I'm gonna, it's ridiculous. Think of it. I'm going to leave a fleece on the ground overnight in the morning. Make the ground wet and the fleece dry. Then I'll believe you, God. Does God do it? You know the story? Yes, he does. Does he believe him? No, he does not. He asks for another sign, for goodness sakes. So, so Gideon is there in the time of the judges to show us what we already know. But asking for signs means you don't believe what's already been shown. Now, this will again come to bear on what we say to God speaking about our time, baptism and supper. But let's stick with Ahaz for a moment here, right? So Ahaz is already unbelieving. God already knows this. And so he just says, I'll give you one. And Ahaz is so unbelieving, he won't even believe that, right? So that's our text again here in the ESV. Uh, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Which is, he thinks he's so clever here. He thinks he's being trapped. A person who is always trying to trap other people in their words will only be able to listen to other people as if he's trying to be trapped. And that's what he's doing here. He thinks Isaiah is trying to trick him into like asking for a sign. And then Isaiah, Isaiah will say, you shouldn't ask for signs. So I won't ask for a sign. But the problem is God has already promised that he's supposed to get one. So again, on every level, Ahaz just shows he's not listening. That's, that's what unbelief comes down to. He's not listening. And God says, look, I, I already promised to you that I'm going to not let Pika and Risen do this. So here, it will certainly come to pass even more. You won't ask for a sign, I'll give you one. I'll make it up myself. Behold, verse 14, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And there's a lot more that comes out of this text, including the punishment that God foretells, which is that because they don't trust in God, Assyria, who they've called for, who will come and ruin these other countries, is also going to come ruin Judah 
two. So that by the time that Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, is on the throne, all the armies of Assyria that was supposed to help, they've now taken over all of Judea. Judea. And they're all the way up to the very gates of Jerusalem itself. They surrounded the gates. They have the voice of Assyria, a guy named the Rabshakeh, standing by the washer's field, announcing to the wall in Hebrew, throw down your arms and come out because your king and your God can't save you. And Hezekiah, who was probably born shortly after this prophecy to a young woman who would have been married to Ahaz, he goes into the temple and he prays. Do you remember this? Elisha is up in a room on a window and he's got his servant with him at this time. They're looking out and the servant's like, oh my gosh, we're all going to die. And Elijah's like, Have you, look again, dude. And he looks out and there's more angels of fire than there is the army around. It's all the same story. And Isaiah is prophesying this coming to pass as a punishment on, on Ahaz trying to grab worldly power to save himself. The worldly power is going to destroy him. And yet for the sake of David's name, God's not going to let Judah be destroyed because he must bring Jesus from David's line. So with or without Ahaz, right? If you want to be established, believe. If you don't want to be established, it's still going to happen. Huh? So that's, well, that's our text kind of left there. Hezekiah certainly fulfills the birth of a maiden, uh, you know, a young woman. I should probably mention that here since we do have the time, I think, today. If you get into a church where they like to debate the truth of the Bible, and there's lots of these out there, most of them aren't really too concerned about doing it in front of you anymore. What they'll do instead is just talk about everything and anything but the text of the Bible. But you know, 50 years ago, they had to convince you that they didn't have to talk about the Bible. And one of the ways they did this was by calling into question what it said. You know, six days of creation, Jonah in, in a big fish, right? A virgin having a baby. Now, come on, really? Huh? And our age of rationalism is so reasonable, as you can see. Our age of rationalism dismissed and poo-pooed these, these stories. And so when these scholars, who were all very intelligent, very careful in our institutions, our colleges, our universities, that were all originally dedicated to various uh, forwarding of philosophical and enlightened and Christian thought, um, as they got into these texts and wanted to undo them, one of the things they found here is that Hebrew is not as specific about the word virgin as English is. Okay? I'm going to try to say it again in a different way. In Hebrew, if I call you a maiden, that's also the word for virgin, and there's no other word. But as a maiden, you could just be a young woman and not any longer a virgin, both in English and technically in Hebrew. Although remember, how many virgins are there supposed to be? Or How many non-virgins are there supposed to be unmarried in a Hebrew society? I mean, zero really is what should be there. So the argument right on that point there is like a tangent. I'm bringing it up to show you, though, how often this will happen. What do they want to do? They want to call into question the meaning of the word. Oh, look, the prophecy says it's a maiden, not a virgin. Oh, look. Hezekiah was born of a maiden. Oh, look, Luke just made up that part about Jesus. That's how the argument goes. And I want you to know that argument's there. Hopefully, so you can like dismiss it right now. Like That's the dumbest thing you ever heard, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's the most unbelieving thing you can hear. That's what a skeptic and a wolf would say about the text, that it's not trustworthy. Wherein, what we can see very clearly 
is that Luke not only believes that the Old Testament promise was about a virgin, ultimately and finally, but that he thinks that's what happened with the life of Jesus. And hence he writes it down. Remember that Luke is the gospel writer who has not as an eyewitness himself, but as a secondary companion of Paul, gone and visited and talked to anybody he can throughout his entire life as he's writing this down. Imagine he meets Mary in Ephesus as an older lady, couple conversations over a couple weeks. Tell me everything you remember. She treasured all this up in her heart after all. And that's in fact, he's the one who tells us that, yeah? So see Luke's recounting here as both uh, an intentional story with a driving meaning, but then also more than any of the other gospels, he wants to convince you he's the scientist. Like this has been looked into. This is not a myth. This is someone who checked this stuff out. And well, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy with John, Gabriel goes again to Nazareth, which we know from the Matthew story last week, the, the, um, Joseph and the wise men taking Jesus up eventually to Nazareth, the Nazarene he's called. He goes there to this virgin who is betrothed to him, right? Now, a betrothed woman in the ancient world is also a very different thing than what we think about with engagements today. And to, to dig into the details is probably less important than to see that it would have been a group thing more than an independent thing. That is to say, nobody, son or daughter, is just running off and getting a wife somewhere or getting a husband somewhere. Generally, there's matchmaking involved. There's agreements and exchanges involved. Why? Well, because life's hard and you want to eat. And not everyone who says, I'll run off with you can feed you. That's a big part of it. Uh, and so dealing with that reality and making sure that within the community also, the religion was retained, that you're marrying someone faithful, all of this was done as a group more than just, you know, go to college, drink a lot, and hopefully it works out, um, which has been our plan for the most part. I, I think this one seems more reasonable, honestly. But then one of the other things that gives us a lot of trouble with this is that Mary could have been, you know, 15, 16 years old. It's possible. Some scholars say as young as 13. I, I don't I don't think that's reasonable. Um, she probably was more in that 16, 17 age. Imagine when a woman flowers physically. I know we're not used to thinking about bodies. Nature is telling us who we are. But in this whole debate out there about man and woman, like one needs at one time of the month to do something that the other one doesn't need to do, right? Like this, this is just normal. I shouldn't have to talk about it here. But out there, we don't know that anymore. Huh? So again, she would not be married until that's possible because they would have seen marriage as being about procreation. Like you're going to gather together and you're going to become a family. It's, it's what's going to happen. Huh? And so around 16, it seems like you're ready. Well, see, today we would debate that now a little bit, wouldn't we? Why? Well, it's mostly in the head. But let me suggest something to you. Before we think these ancient people were so stupid, let me talk about a... Uh, a magazine cover I saw this week. I didn't get the magazine myself. It came across my, my internet feed. And I can't even remember which magazine it was, but I know what it was selling. It was selling the 40-year-old single career woman who still plans to have kids. The 40-year-old single career woman who still plans to have kids. And so what the woman on the cover is doing is freezing her unfertilized eggs. So the whole story is about how you too can go do anything you want, ladies, as long as you want. And sometime in your 50s or 60s, you can have those eggs fertilized by whoever you like. And you don't even have to put them in your own womb. You get some poor 
ethnic person to have the baby for you. I mean, it just sounds like old times, doesn't it? So wicked, so wicked. Uh, but that's what's being pitched. Now, uh, I also learned that this same story is a few years old and that the same woman has not been able to have a child, though she's tried through the infertile fertilization efforts. I can also tell you that all in vitro fertilization efforts ultimately involve the abortifacient edge of the industry. So there's almost no way to have a baby, not naturally, without having more than you want and having some of them get killed in the process. There's almost no way. Now, I'm not, I'm not the scientist. I've only read what I've read. But it, it is that much of a thing, right? And so to have our entire civilization saying, don't have kids, don't get married, wait till you're 40, and then use magical science to make it all work, let me suggest Mary and Joseph aren't that crazy. Like maybe we could pull back a little, right? Uh, and so you know, don't be too hard on that, these ideas. And I want them out there so that, again, you young women can think about. 16 is probably a bit young in our society. The men aren't ready for you anyway. They're all still a bunch of boys. But 40, you don't want to have babies in your 40s unless you've been having them all along and you know what you're doing. You're a lot more tired. You're, yeah, you have way more worries to deal with in the world while you're young. You got the strength. You got the strength. And the old wisdom said, so get married, have kids, and then it, God will work it out for you. Again, I'm repeating that here because we need it. And then see how that's just what was happening. Mary's a young woman. She's betrothed to this man, Joseph. Who is he? A man who's older than her in the community. We can debate whether he had a former marriage, another wife, other kids. That all has to do with how Jesus' brothers and sisters were born. Are they from Mary or not? Let's leave that. We know he's a faithful, pious man. We know he loves his neighborhood and community. How do we know this? Because when he finds out that his to-be wife cheated on him, he doesn't do what is his right, which is to have her publicly embarrassed. Instead, he tries to have mercy on her and, and graciously back away from the relationship. So you know Joseph's a good guy just from that. She is betrothed to him. That means there's a one to three year waiting period before maybe one more year before they actually get married. So it's not necessarily in the ancient world just the, you know, I'm going to give you a ring and next year we're together. There's a lot more uh, exchanging of goods that goes on, maybe after a betrothal. Then there's going to be a dowry where the man's going to work and pay the family for the daughter. You can see this as being buying or you can see it as being proving to the father he can do it. So from my point of view, like I don't want to give my daughter's hand to somebody who can't prove to me he can feed her. Call me nuts, right? Call me nuts. But that's kind of what's, what's going on here as well. All of this to emphasize marriage. She is betrothed. She is to be married because that's what we are to do while we wait for our Lord to return, to build houses and live with them, to marry and be given in marriage, and to pray for our country for in its good, we shall find our good. Those are Jeremiah's words to the exiles during their time in Babylon. So that's what Mary is doing. That's what Joseph is doing. That's what the house of David is doing. And now here comes uh, Gabriel. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Hail Mary, full of grace. Right there. Except it's not right there, but it kind of is. So Hail Mary, full of grace, coming from, the, I think, the King James English translation. But you probably know it best from uh, the Roman Catholic Hail Mary, which you at least know the football play, right? Like the long throw. Um, the, the idea of that, I think, is that it's a long shot, which 
probably is a dig at Catholics, if you think about it, that praying to Mary is a long shot. But anyway, what they do with this Hail Mary, this set of phrases, that's almost a quote from the Bible, but not because they add stuff to it. But what they do is they use it as a prayer or a conversation with Mary, who they assume is listening and can tell Jesus to do stuff. A prayer. Um, They use it as a prayer along with the Lord's Prayer. And so in their piety, when they would come in before the service, if they would say the Lord's Prayer, they would say that with it. Or if they would come to confession and I would forgive them, which I would do for you, and then I would tell you, here's what you need to go do to have it really count. That's what the Romans would do, but I would not tell you. Um, You would have to go and say 10 Our Fathers and 7 Hail Marys or something like that. It all comes from this text, effectively. And I mean, the translation of the ESV is not real great either. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Um, it's the same word in Greek twice. So I'll try to say it real woodenly. Grace to you. Grace to you, O graced one. Okay? Grace to you, O graced one. And you will find it again in verse 30. Do not be afraid. You have found grace with God. Now it's translated as favor. It's translated as where to go? Greetings and favor. The word is the same word. You are saved by grace. That's what it's about. So is this about Gabriel coming and saying, Mary, you are the queen of heaven. You have the grace through your immaculate conception and your sinlessness to bring to bear the savior of the world and be co-redemptrix of us all. That's the Roman Catholic teaching. Is he saying that? No. I mean, from that one word, are you kidding me? That's like an awful lot. It really is. What he's saying instead is, hello, Mary, you have an amazing thing about to happen to you because that's what God does. And notice what she has happened. She's greatly troubled. It bothers her. She's not like, yeah, I've been immaculately conceived and have no sin since my childhood. I'm ready to go. No, no, no. She's like, what? <laughs> what? What? Uh, she tries to discern. Now, One of my profs at the seminary uh, said this very well. I'll try to repeat it. It's it's almost crass, but I think it makes the case. Like, and I'll I'll prelude it here. When you go to like Hallmark or maybe Walmart, you can find pictures of angels. They're always pretty. They're super pretty. Like you want to look at that angel. They got maybe rainbow wings or smiling face, cherub, whatever. Almost every time an angel shows up in the Bible, the first thing they have to say is, Stop being afraid. And the reason is because when angels show up, you know what happens? Uh, I'm going to quote the seminary prof. You want to fill your pants. That's what he said, right? You get terrified. Why? They're insanely powerful. This is an archangel. Bam, I'm here. Hi, how you doing? She does not know what to do. Wouldn't you be a bit nervous? Imagine you're in what? Your, Your kitchen, your garage. You turn around. There's some guy there, only shining. Hi. You're blessed. What do you mean, right? What do you mean? Well, he says to her, don't be afraid. What's nice is that the angels always say, stop being afraid. Demons don't say that. Demons tell other stories to make you afraid. Angels, when they show up, they will tell you not to be afraid, and then they will talk about Jesus. Which is how you know there aren't many that show up these days. It was all back here. But don't be afraid. You have found grace with God. Now, in this, she's no different than the rest of us. And I really want you to see Mary as an emblem of the rest of us. She is, before she is anything else, a picture to mimic, not to pray to, but to see how she prays. 
and to desire to pray the way she prays, to hear and believe the way she hears and believes. And that's what I hope this story will show us here again. She has found grace. God's given her grace. Here's the particular grace. That behold, she will conceive in her womb and bear a son and call his name Jesus. Virgin, with child, naming him Emmanuel. Yeah, God with us. Jesus means God saves us. He will be great. He will be the son of the most high. Oh, that's so beautiful. It reads so well. Establishing the throne, reigning over Jacob, the kingdom will have no end. It's just all a good promise there, yeah? But now she asks the question. Remember how I said Zechariah asks, how can I know this? Remember that? And then Gabriel says, I'm Gabriel. That's how you can know this. Um, she says a different question. Not how can I know, but how shall it be? How will this be since I'm a virgin? I want to emphasize here too, how much Zechariah wanted to wrap his brain around God. His question is about knowledge. How can I know? How can I be sure? How can I be in charge, really? And Mary's question is not. It's just like, I don't understand, please help. And that posture is very different. I think Luke's trying to tell us it's different on purpose. He wants us to see that trying to grasp God with our heads will usually end up with us being humbled by God for assuming we can do more than we can. Or as asking a question, God does not want you to, quote, check your brain at the door. I mean, you can't, can you? Goodness, I go way too fast for that. God doesn't want you to check your brain at the door. He wants you to engage your mind. And so Mary's asking, all right, like I'm supposed to get married. How's this going to happen? And this, again, amazing. I, I, I'm lost for words just to read it. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. I think for my own personal sake, let me just loft this as my opinion, I believe that the conception, the overshadowing, the making of the baby is happening as these words are being spoken and she's believing. Like it's all one event in God's sight. I can't guarantee you that. It could have been later that night the Holy Spirit overshadowed her. I don't know. It's a grand mystery. But what I want you to see is that behind this grand mystery that she herself doesn't understand yet, it's, it's this thing that can't be believed. What does she say in response? I'm going to repeat what I said again, though. A thing that can't be believed. If I told you as a virgin you're going to have a baby, you would not believe me. You shouldn't believe me. If an angel showed up and told you, you would. I mean, think about how hard it would be even then. Think of getting in the fleece. It's not enough. It's never enough for our unbelieving hearts. But Mary, it is. It is enough for her heart because it's a believing heart. Now, is Mary only a believer? No, she's just like you. She has a flesh. She has the spirit working on her to regenerate faith. But in that then, the faith is regenerated. She hears the promise. She's scared. But he says, this is a good thing. It's for all the world. Behold, verse 38, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Let it be to me according to your word. With everything else I've said today then, understanding that, oh, I, I haven't told you why it's March 25th. Understanding that uh, um, the entire set of prophecies is leading us to the incarnation of Jesus and us seeing Mary as one who we are to emulate, as believing the promises when they come. What I want you to then take from all of this is that as you baptize, walk up to this meal today, let it be to me according to your word is exactly what you're doing. 
You're following in Mary's steps as an angel, a messenger from God, brings to you a word from God that is all but impossible, that conceived within you, in fact, will be the Holy Son of God, who will enter into you by the Holy Spirit's promises. And becoming one with you, he shall make you one with that body that he has already promised, God prepared for all eternity, greater than the blood of bulls and goats, to to outlast all things and bring you with him into the paradise of the world to come. See Mary and see Jesus' uh, annunciation, the time when she hears this unbelievable news and believes, if you can see that as your moment to be here at the supper, always, whenever you hear this story, it's about the supper coming and Christ coming into you and the guarantee and the promise. And rather than say, like Zechariah, you know, how shall I know? How shall I know? Just say, you know, the, the Lord is God. The Lord is God. We're done, but I forgot one thing I don't want to forget to tell you today. And that is, why is it the 25th? Of all the holidays in the church here, you should be able to mem- remember uh, Annunciation. Because, and it's because the old world was, was nicely, um, uh, uh, I lost the word for it. Um, they focused their attention on details in ways that we wouldn't necessarily do. So, you might notice that March 25th, the day that we remember Gabriel announcing Jesus' birth to Mary, is precisely, like to the day, nine months before December 25th. Because as you know, a pregnancy lasts, to the day, nine months, right? Like every time. Kids, no, it's not how it works. It's not how it works at all. But uh, when a church father in the 300s figured out with some math that, according to his calculations, Jesus died on March 25th in the month of Nisan of a certain year, he realized, since we know Jesus died on March 25th, and since it's common knowledge that prophets are conceived in the womb the day that they're born, like you all knew that, right? Or excuse me, the day they die. Prophets are conceived in the womb the day that they die. Right? That's common knowledge back then. So this church father figures out Jesus dies on March 25th and says, we can know when he was born. It's December 25th. That's when he was born. And look at that. It's, that's how it happened. So when you have the, the, you know, the scholars online that want to say we borrowed it from like the, the Mithras cult and the worship of the ineffable sun or whatever, all this nonsense from Roman religion. No, it was just a, it was a clerical error in the 300s. But as a result, you can always remember when uh, Annunciation is. It's nine months before Christmas, March 25th. Not the best point to close the sermon with. Uh, I'd hope to have that one built in a little bit earlier. But it's, it's worth remembering. This will come back every year. It's, it's worth remembering. Uh, let us prepare our hearts and minds for prayer by rising to sing the operatory together in the name of Jesus. Amen.